We're glad you're here. Let's give him a hand. Praise the Lord. Yes, I'm on. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. You may be seated. It's a pleasure to be here, and again, I appreciate the invite. And this church is truly a blessing um, because it continues to remind me of the abilities of God and what God can do with people that are just willing to say yes. And your pastor and his wife and their ministry has blessed me over and over just talking with them, uh, allowing me to be their friend and communicating with them. I appreciate them so much. You folks are truly blessed. And I've always said this to other churches when I go somewhere, I always claim the promise of Abraham upon the ministry. And God told Abraham that wherever you go, wherever your feet touch is yours. And I claim that for churches because if God has enough faith in your ministry to send it somewhere else in that body, then you need to recognize the blessing that you have been operating in consistently. And to know and understand that the Lord is able to take ministry from this place and bless the body in another place means that he has confidence in the ministry that's left here to continue the process of what he wants to do as a whole. And I appreciate that about the ministry and the reality of the kingdom of God, that it is never all about us. It's just always about him. And if we're willing to go wherever he says, go, I need you right now, then he's always there with us. And, and when I come to a church like this, like Brother Showstrand had said, we're kind of, I don't know why God's, God's just made my ministry, I guess, a foundation builder. He's told me that. And um, so when I come to a place like this, it helps me to recognize what God has in mind. Because he wants, to, he wants to mimic everything he does in his body everywhere. And uh, I appreciate the Lord tonight. First thing I want to say is I'm glad this, this pulpit was glass. So you guys could see my sister up here singing. Because <laughs> the flowers probably had her covered up a little. I know she could hardly see out over the top, but... Praise the Lord. I do appreciate my sister. It was the Holy Ghost in her life that began to speak in mine when, when I was in the condition I was in, and I'm just very glad she didn't tell any stories on me. Now, I know that I'm in the will of God tonight, and this is probably going to be a, a different service than you've ever been in. I wrestled with this for a couple of weeks now because I didn't feel like I was, I was the one to bring such a message. But he assured me today and on the way up here again, and it's been confirmed. I'm so thankful when the Lord confirms things. What I want to talk, I want to, I want to talk to the elders tonight. I believe the service is for the elders. Me, I consider myself an elder. That's why God gives us grandchildren. They remind us of that. And uh, my granddaughter's always reminding me of that. <laughs> and what I'm going to do, I just want to give you a fair warning. I want you to stay locked in with me because I have about 10 hours of stuff to cover in about 30 minutes. So stay, stay with me, but I want to warn you, I'm going to talk you into a very deep depression first. <laughs> All right? So don't turn it off. Don't, don't start tuning it out, because I promise you the Lord is going to go somewhere with it. And the reason I feel this is because we are living in a society and a generation right at the present time that has no knowledge of this God we serve as a whole. We are blessed to be within the body of Christ and to know and to understand the things that God has revealed to us and to recognize the places that we set, the words that we hear, the feeling of the unction of the Holy Ghost and the anointing that comes upon our lives any given part of the day when we call upon His name is something we should never ever take for granted. Sister, I appreciated your testimony of your brother and I know God is able to heal him, but I'll tell you what, we must never ever forget that salvation is the greatest miracle that will ever happen in the lives of anyone because it is the only miracle that lasts. 
I tell people all the time, God can heal this physical body 500 times, but the only thing he's interested in is that eternal soul that will be with him from that point on. And so he looks and consistently operates in the eternal. I tell people this all the time. The scripture, the word of God is powerful. It is effective. It still works. When God speaks, he speaks in the past, in the present, in the future, all three at the same time. He does this consistently throughout his word. Why? Because he is letting us know and understand that his anointing and that his wisdom and that his knowledge is way beyond anywhere we can comprehend. And yet he loves us enough to give us that opportunity to acknowledge it, to see it, and let it become a part of our lives. For instance, the scripture just to use that we're all familiar with. For he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. The fundamental basics of the word of God and the way he says things matter. There's a reason that he says wounded. That is past tense. This is 800 years B.C. and yet God is speaking in the past tense. Wounded for our transgressions. Bruised. Past tense. But then he makes a judgment and says by his stripes we are healed. Our is present. Our covers right now. And the reason that God says things in that manner is because when the enemy of your soul tries to come and convince you of something that God has not done or will not do or does not want to do, when he uses the statement, by his stripes we are healed, that makes it right now. Because if the Lord would have spoken and said by his stripes we were healed, then he can argue the validity of God's ability at any given time in the history of humanity. God speaks with intention. God's word is with intention. And so everything that he says in the orchestration of that word matters and the placing of that word matters. Amen? So I want to take you tonight what I want to talk to the elders about and I'm going to show us something. This hit me a couple years ago while I was reading and studying about King David. And the first couple of scriptures we're going to look at are written by Solomon, the wisest man in the world. At the end of his life, the book of Ecclesiastes 1, verses 14 and 15, Solomon makes an observation at the end of his life. He's been king over millions of people. He has made thousands upon thousands of judgments. He has dealt with every type of characteristic personality there was to deal with. And he comes to this conclusion at the end of his life. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. So you have an individual here that was anointed by God to be king over God's people. And he continued to pray. If you read the prayer of Solomon in the scripture, it, it will astound you that Solomon sought God in such a manner and the Lord was so impressed with him that he came down and made an answer to him and made a statement. Solomon said, I will give you whatever you want. And Solomon said, I just need wisdom to judge your people, to lead your people, to know what you want me to do. And at the end of his life, through the process of everything that he dealt with in that 40-year period, he comes to this conclusion and he makes a statement, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be made numbered. A depressing thought, isn't it? But see, God, in his wisdom recognized the statement that Solomon was making. And God in his wisdom just a couple of hundred years later through the prophet Isaiah gave an answer not only to the earth at the time, to Israel at the time, but it was a prophetic statement that still reaches in to the world that we live in today. In Isaiah 42 and 16, God is prophesying about what he is going to do in the earth. And he says, I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. He's not just talking about physical blindness here. He's referencing what we're seeing in our world today. Men and women that don't even comprehend what relationships are supposed to be. They are totally blind and disabled to function in the life that we call normal. What the world is calling normal right now is not even on the radar with the mind of God and the things that he designed in the beginning. The world and the society that continues to speak and, and lets the voices echo in the minds of our young people and even in the middle-aged people anymore is consistently trying to convince them that what God designed no longer exists. And Solomon kind of came to that conclusion. He came to the conclusion after dealing with people for 40 years and having to make decisions and stepping back and saying, there just ain't no way. No 
These people can't make it. They just do not receive it. They just don't get it. They continue to destroy themselves. You watch them just, just disintegrate. And so God in his wisdom, he says, well, let me, let me tell you something. I'll bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. When my sister was testifying, she was referencing this kind of a situation. Paths that we did not know. We understood there was a God. We were told there was a God. But there was something missing about that God. The identity of that God did not exist. The teaching of that God did not exist. The relevance of that God really had nothing to do with the changing of a lifestyle or the reality that he can make me something different than what I was. And we're living in a world right now that is struggling with identity. That's why this whole issue with this same-sex business going on and all this other stuff happening that we're consistently hearing about is because it's an identity crisis. The enemy of the soul of man has tried to convince man that God is not even interested in him anymore and if that's not good enough, he wants to try to convince them that he even has nothing to do with their existence. So that kind of mentality and that kind of thinking starts permeating through the minds of people because when you can't, you can't identify with something relevant in your life, then you just begin to fall for anything. I've been teaching on deception for the last several months in our church. And I said the thing about deception that makes it truthful is the element of truth that's consistently in it. And so the enemy of the soul of man, he walks into the garden and immediately begins to lead in deception, has God said. So the Lord here, he's answering Solomon just a couple hundred years later through his prophet. Then he goes on and says, I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. When the man, the humanity looks at it and says, there's no way, we can't do this, God stands up and says, I can I tell people all the time, I thank God for science. I thank God for the medical field. I thank God for everything that man can do because I believe all wisdom and knowledge comes from Almighty God. But man's limitations are God's beginnings. When man stands up and says, this can't be done, God stands up and says, oh yeah, I can do that. And then he goes on and says, these things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to talk to you about the last words of David. I was reading about David and studying David. Man, this, this kind of slapped me right up alongside the head one day. And I've contemplated on it, and I get to thinking about it, and studied and studied. And this is why I say I want to speak to the elders tonight. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, this is kind of a repetitive statement of Psalms 18. Psalms 18 is attached to, it's a statement that David made, and it's repeated in the book of Samuel. It's just a few words changed, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. just want to pull out a few to lay the foundation of what I'm talking about. Second Samuel 22 and 1, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. Historians believe that this psalm was written right around the time that David became king of Israel. He was king of Judah at the time for about seven years, and finally Israel makes him king. He, he ends up, you know, Saul was taken out of the way. He fights the Philistines. He has battle after battle. God establishes him as the king of Israel as a whole. And so he pens the words of this thing. We'll jump down to verse 21 for the sake of time. These statements that come from David, he says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him, and have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eye. Now understand that we can look at this scripture and it could be used as prophetic statements concerning Jesus, the Messiah, but it also, we need to look at it from the realm of this young man having been given victory after victory, recognizing what God has done for him, and now he's sitting upon the throne. His promise to him as king has been finished. So David pens these words right now as a young man. This is before his sin with Bathsheba. This is before 
he numbers Israel and God kills 70,000 Israelites because he numbered Israel. This is before the mistakes that David made as he was leading and guiding God's people and the reality of the consequences of choice coming to the forefront. If you look at the words, you'll see that there's a lot of me and my in there. And there's a lot of the attitude that I just really can't make any mistakes. Well, I'm sorry, we can. And this man did. I like to ask God a lot of questions. So I'm reading, I, I, like, I, I just like to study. I study the word scientifically and medically. I just like to study it. I like to see what it's for. And, and so with this, this deal with Bathsheba, I went to the Lord and I said, God, what's up with this? Why, why didn't you send Nathan to David when he was looking upon Bathsheba? Why didn't you, why didn't you send the prophet there and warn him then? God never answered me. So I continued my question. I said, Lord, well then, okay, so, so you didn't, why didn't you send Nathan to him when he brought Bathsheba home and did what he did and committed adultery? Why didn't you send the prophet at that time and put a stop to this? And the Lord never answered me. I said, well then, let's go to the next level. Lord, why, why didn't you stop him when he called Uriah home and, and he tried to get him drunk even twice to send him home unto his wife to cover up what it was he was doing. Why didn't you send Nathan to him then? You at least would have saved the man's life. Right. But you didn't say nothing. You didn't send the prophet. You didn't, you didn't give him any kind of warning. You, you watched all this happening and, 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 and another man's life was taken and you never said a word. Why didn't you send the prophet or the word to David before all this was finished, and it caused the issues that it caused. Now, never forget what God spoke to me. He, it put me on the floor on my face. And after I got done asking him that, his answer to me was because when I put the anointing upon the life of an individual that I put on my leadership, when I bless them with my spirit and I take them to the places that I allow them to go, when I give them my spoken word and I acknowledge that I am with them and they do great feats and great works in the earth, then I expect them to be mature enough in their relationship with me to stop it on their own. Now I'm telling you what, that put me on the floor right there. Because I understood something. This relationship with God is not all oh, a one-sided thing. He's not just our servant. He's not just the one who says, I'll bless you and I'll bless you and I'll bless you. Our God has a few expectations and he has expectations of us to mature and to understand why we do what we do and what it is that is relevant in our life and what we represent in the earth. Don't try to convince me that David's servants didn't know what was going on. Those were the men that he sent to gather the woman to him. Those were the people that he sent and told, get Uriah and bring him in. Don't tell me the servants were blind and deaf to the whole situation. It didn't happen in one night. I'm sure they were leaning against the wall and talking about it and maybe even trying to make the same statements that I did. I don't understand this. Why is God letting this happen? What is going on here? I don't get this. A man with a relationship that the scripture declares was after God's own heart. And yet he ends up having a man murdered to try to cover up his own lust and his deceit in his own mind of his ability as a king. He allowed the relationship with God to dictate to him that he was above those that he served to the point where he thought somehow or another that it didn't matter because of who he was. He was king. He could take what he wanted. He, he could say what he wanted and this and that. And so we see the words that David penned in the beginning of his kingship. Then 2 Samuel 23. I told you I was going to take you into a deep depression. So hang in. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to let the Lord bring you out of it. I'm telling you what, I know I'm in the will of the Lord. And I also know that there is a spirit of healing that came here tonight, not in the physical but in the spiritual. Right. 
Because as your pastor mentioned us walking in faith, if there's anything this world needs right now, it is some people who are convinced of their God. Not just talking about it, acting like it, being like it, being convinced that God can take any situation and change any given individual in a heartbeat. I had this confirmed to me, well, the weekend was when we were having the Holy Ghost thing after camp. This young lady comes walking in the church, shorts on, looked like she had had a rough few days. I've been in prison ministry. I've dealt with alcoholics and drug addicts. I knew when I saw her, she was on her last hope. And this was her last thinking in her mind. So she comes, she sits on the back pew of the church. I went over and I greeted her, shook her hand, and I said, How are you? I said, what, how'd, you, how'd you hear about the church? You ever been here? No, never been to church in my life. I said, Well, what brought you here? She said, God told me to come here. Here's somebody who's never been in church, a life of alcohol, drugs, all kinds of illicit things, and she can still hear the voice of God. And she looks at me, and she has tears coming down her cheeks, and she says, can I be forgiven? I say, well, let me explain this to you. Number one, certainly you can be forgiven, because if you had enough sense about you to respond to the voice of God bringing you here, that should tell you right there that God has not cast you aside. He loves you enough and cares about you enough to lead you to a place like this where He can change your life. So yes, you can be forgiven. And I told her, I said, as a matter of fact, you see that baptistry right there? I just cleaned it out yesterday and filled it up last night and it's nice and warm and I'm going to baptize you in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins before you leave this place today and you're going to know what real freedom is. And she just sat there and tears come down her face and we had service and she came up to the altar and laid down on that floor and poured herself out for 10 or 15 minutes. And we got her ready and baptized her. And she came up out of that water and she looked different. I wasn't the only one that noticed it. Several people went up to her and said, you just look different. Hasn't used anything from that day. Has been to church ever since. Bringing her children with her. And she had another child with her this morning that wasn't her own. So we don't have to come up with anything new. We just have to let him be God. Declare him as God. So as I was reading these, i got to hurry up. 2 Samuel 23 and verse 1, Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised upon high, and anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. David understood that the anointing remained with him throughout all his life. He understood that some of the psalms he wrote was not necessarily his own thinking. They were under the inspiration and the Spirit of God. He probably did not really realize that a few thousand years later we would be reading those words, being encouraged by those words, and the prophecy that we know of as the Word of God and the reality of God and the earth exists are fulfilled, done, and taken care of. And he recognized this, and so he's on his deathbed or his last words, and he's saying, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me. I know it. His word was on my tongue and I know it. I know that God raised me up and he anointed me and he allowed me to worship and to praise him. Verse 3 says, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. He identifies again his relationship with God and the reality of the strength of his relationship. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. In other words, what David's trying to say here, if you will, he's, he's saying, I know the Spirit of God has been on me. I know He's anointing me. I know I have spoken His words. When He called me to be king, this is what He dictated to me. I should be as a leader. My words should be right. I should be as the light of the morning. And I should be as the tender grass. I should be something that is pliable and and responsible in the hands of Almighty God. 
He knows that God gave him an expectation. But this next scripture is the one that stopped me in my tracks. And he goes on and he says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is my salvation and all my desire. He's saying, I know God made me a covenant. I know the things that he ordered. I know that what he says is sure. And it's really what I desire. But look at his last statement. Although he make it not to grow. And I read that and I thought about that. And I started realizing something. You look at the transition of the statements. You look at the contrast of the statements that David penned when God had given him victory, established him as king. And here he is at the end of his life, watching some of his children kill one another, watching one of his daughters being raped by a son, watching another son trying to take the throne away from him. And he, he rides out of Jerusalem willing to allow that to happen. In 1 Kings chapter 1, David, even on his deathbed, has to deal with the two sons fighting over who's going to be the king. And he's realizing here at the end of his life, and he makes this statement, although my house be not so with God. Man, my house is a mess. I think one of the biggest lies that Satan has managed to perpetrate on the body of Christ is this idea of dysfunctional living. Because if you study the Bible, there is no one more dysfunctional than the people of God. There is not one individual that God called to do anything that didn't mess up big time. Abraham made all kinds of problems with his own decisions. David did. What I love about the story, even though with Bathsheba, when the prophet did come see, the prophet had the right at that time to take David out of that throne room, carry him outside, and have him stoned. And David knew that. David understood that part of the law. Technically, that's what should have happened. But when God did finally send the prophet to him, the words that God spoke, as well as the condemnation words, was, oh yeah, and by the way, tell him, I've already put away his sin. God had already forgiven David even before David falls on the ground and says, God, I have sinned against you. Why did God do that? Because even though the failures of the man, he still understood the integrity in the heart of David toward him. This is where I want to talk to some of the elders. We have come unto the kingdom maybe while we were young, as my sister said, I didn't know nothing about this. My wife was Methodist, I was Catholic when we got married, and God began to lead us on a trek in pursuit of Him. And I made a lot of mistakes. I listened and I tried to do what I was taught, I tried to pursue, and yet we make a lot of mistakes throughout life. Not only do we make mistakes, but those that we pour ourselves into sometimes can discourage us, leave us frustrated, and leave us shaking our heads at times. We'll have some children, maybe, that are not living for God. We, we watch our families and our lives like David did, just basically disintegrate the whole time while we're praying and while we're continuing to follow after this God that called us. And we realize that somehow or another throughout the last 30, 35 years, everything just really hasn't worked out the way I thought it should. That things, things didn't come together just quite like I had planned. And that I just don't really feel like I've accomplished anything at all that God has expected me to do. And such it was with David when he made the statement, Oh man, God has all kinds of plans and good things for me, but it's just not so with my house. I'm looking at it and it seems like it's undone. I'm looking at it and it seems like I haven't really overcome my failure as a father or as a king. I'm looking at it and it seems like the words that I spoke fell on deaf ears and it doesn't really matter to those that were close to me and walked with me and were relevant with me. There are people in this place tonight. You have poured your life into everything that you know that God has called you to do. You have been a Sunday school teacher. You have prayed 
prayed, you have sought, and you have fought for things. You are still praying for things that you're waiting to see manifested in the spiritual realm of your life and in the physical as well. And yet in the back of your mind, the enemy, he repeats this statement. Consistently trying to condemn us. Consistently trying to make us feel like we failed. And for some reason or another, it just was never enough. All the battles that David had won. All the things that he did accomplish for the kingdom of God. And yet when he's pulling his feet up on that bed at the end of his life, he's shaking his head, somehow convinced that it's just not so. With this house, God just didn't make this thing grow like I thought he would. And I'm here to tell you tonight under the anointing of the Spirit of God, if there is ever a time when the elders in the body of Christ are needed, it is in the generation that we live if there is ever a time for a Joshua and a Caleb to stand up, even though they may be the only two that believed back then, God is still going to use them. And He's going to turn a generation around. And He will change a society if there'll just be a handful of those that can remember that God is able. This is not about what we accomplish. This is about what He has done. This is about how he perceives things, not ourselves. And how do I know that? Because I can continue to read in Chronicles and in Kings that every time there was a king that did good, there was a statement made. And that statement is, he did right that which was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David did. So David may have been looking through the eyes thinking somehow he failed and thinking somehow he was dying, leaving something undone. There was a God that made him a promise. And David couldn't see just a few thousand years ahead to the point that here we sat. He couldn't even see the thousand years ahead where the Messiah would come from his lineage and set upon the throne that God promised him he would set. And that the things that he did tell him and that covenant that he made him would be real in the earth and a lasting covenant. Hallelujah. I, I watch these young people. I'm hearing this all the time. How do we reach these millennials? How do we reach these millennials? I'm reading article after article. I'll tell you how we're going to reach these millennials. It's for us as elders to stand up and declare what God has done for us. It's for us as elders to declare the reality that God is still relevant and that God's foundations cannot be shaken and that God can still do everything He says He can do. And I don't care what your lifestyle is, He can fix it. I don't care where you've been, He can forgive you. I don't care what it looks like to you, He can give you a home and a family and the way He designed it and it will work. I think about Joshua and Caleb and how they stood and declared among millions, we are able. We are able. And they stood there I use this lesson in leadership training because it's so powerful. Ten people talked four million out of a promise. Ten people kept four to five million from receiving what Almighty God had for them. And I'm dealing with all kinds of religions now. I'm, we baptized two more Catholic people on a Monday night because they didn't want anybody in their church to know they were baptized in Jesus' name. I told the church when I went there, we're going to be baptizing people on off nights. You get ready for it because it's going to start happening. We baptized that young lady, another lady that day, a guy got the Holy Ghost. I baptized two more people on a Monday night a couple weeks later. God is doing it. And I think about those two standing there. And I've had these people from other denominations and their, their famous question, well, how can all these people be wrong? I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe the Bible is correct? Yeah. You believe knowing the ark really happened? Yeah. Wouldn't you say the whole world was wrong at the time? There were only eight people in that boat. 
Was it the majority that hung Jesus on that cross? Was it the majority that stood there trying to convince everybody else that they couldn't do it when two men were standing there saying, oh, yes, we can? God said so. Don't ever fall for the lie that we are wrong because people don't agree with us. Stand fast on the reality that we are founded on the Word of God. It cannot be shaken. It will not be shaken. And it certainly will not be removed. And that's what I tell them. Well, show me one place in the Scripture where the majority ever agreed with God. Just one. Show me one place where the majority ever agreed with God. Now, I'm not saying that to be negative. I'm simply talking about the reality that over and over and over again in the Scripture, all it takes is one or two that say, hey, God can do this. You look at little Josiah, eight years old when he becomes king. And by the time he is 26 years old, he has the whole societal culture of Israel changed. Because he's got his mind made up. He's going to live for God. And get this. He does half of that without the Word of God even being made known to him until he's in his 20s. They find the written Word of God laying in the temple, thrown in the corner, and he's already got Israel turned around based on principle, integrity, and belief in his God. Isaiah 64, or 64 and 4, they don't have it up there. Since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither have I seen, O God, besides thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Ecclesiastes 8 and 8, I'm closing. I hope you understand where I'm coming from here. Elders, I hope you understand where I'm coming from here. I know we get physically tired. Trust me, I'm, I'm one of those that just was, was never stopping, and I'm realizing I'm not <laughs> able to do what I used to do. And I look back on things, and I, I wonder, you know, what could I have done? It's, it's the old what-if game. You know, if is one of the biggest words that causes a lot of problems. But here's another statement that Solomon makes at the end of his life, and he... He states these words. He says, There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. In other words, he's recognizing the blessed opportunity, availability of the Spirit of God and the value of it in his life. Even though he wasn't filled with it, he learned to recognize the operation of it. And then he goes on and says, we don't, we don't even have power in the day of death. But then his last statement is what I look at and what I encourage myself in. And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. I was talking with this guy, me and him get together. He's a Catholic guy. We've been friends for years. And since I came to Marietta, he's connecting with me all the time. And I'll just stop in his office and we'll end up sitting there three or four hours having Bible study. He just keeps asking. I keep telling him, man, I'm sorry. I don't want to take up you. No, no, I love this. Wait, sit, sit here. He just keeps asking me stuff. And he was one of those. And he, and, and he, he sat there, looked at me. He said, so we're in a war then. I said, exactly. This is a spiritual war, man. It's a war for your soul. It's a war for the thing that God has redeemed already unto himself, and he owns it. But the enemy of your soul is trying to convince you otherwise. And in reading these words, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. I understood one thing, and I'll make the statement again. When you look in the Scripture... To the people that we look at and we teach about and we study, you will not find any record in the Bible where God told David to fight Goliath. You will not find any record in the Bible where God told Ruth to go with Naomi. You will not find any record in the Bible where God 
told Esther to do what she did. You'll not find any record in the Bible where God told Daniel to do what he did fast and not defile himself. You'll not find any record in the Bible where God told Nehemiah to fall on his face and begin to repent for his people and open up the door of opportunity. You won't find any place where God told those men and those women to do that. The reason being is because God is always looking for those who are already convinced that he can go where he says they can. God is consistently looking for that individual that just has enough faith in God in them already that speaks and says, if he said so, then this can be done. Every one of those circumstances that we look at and we preach about and we study about were turning points in the history of God's people that manifested themselves in a challenge that was contrary to the normal. Right. There was a giant that had the whole armies of Israel hiding and cowering in their tents with his challenge. And one young man that knew what his God was able to do stepped forward and said, Is there not a cause? Nehemiah had heard the shape of Jerusalem and the condition of his people and the way things were and it caused him to fall on his face and begin to seek God and pray. Daniel did not understand that God had plans for him. He had no idea that he would ever end up in the king's house when he stepped back and said, I'm not going to defile myself with anything that you expect of me. You just watch me live for God and I will show you what he can do. So I want to challenge you tonight, elders. I'm not picking on you. I'm challenging you to pick up that old rusty sword that might be laying in the corner somewhere that maybe Joshua and Caleb may have put away their shields and their swords because when God sent them in to spy out the land, they were ready to fight and they were convinced that they could go. And a few people talked them out of it and a few circumstances dictated something other than what they expected was going to happen. And so they watched the generation die away. See, I used this analogy quite often. Why do you think it was easier for Joshua and Caleb to lead that generation into Israel than it was for Moses to lead the first generation that he brought out of Egypt? Because they just got done burying all the unbelievers. They already understood there really is no place we can go back to. The end result of not believing God ends up out here in the wilderness dying. How can we lose when we follow after God? And when you study the two scenarios, you see that when God brings them to the Red Sea and they're all carrying on because the army comes racing up behind them. I love this part of it. It just shows me God's, God's character. It just blew my mind. Moses is standing there carrying on. The people are going wild. God's response to Moses was, What are you crying to me for? Just go forward. Like, no big deal. A couple miles of water here. Just like you've done it a million times. What are you crying to me for? Go forward. And what's interesting about it is when you really look at Scripture, study it out, you'll see God did not part the water. Moses parted the water. The instrument that God gave him with his calling, God said, lift your rod and part the water. You take the people through, I will destroy what wants to destroy you. And if we ever think that we're going to reach and change and lead anyone someplace we're not willing to go ourselves, we have another thing coming. And God takes it to the next level when he takes that generation that he takes into the Jordan, across the Jordan River, God's instructions are a little different. And he says, Joshua, you put the ark on the shoulders of the priest and you keep everybody else back 
about a half a mile, you put them up on that range so they can see what's going on. And I want you to place that ark back where it belongs, up on the shoulders. You put me back in my position up above you so that everybody in Israel can see that I'm where I should be. And when the feet of the priest touch the water, then it'll part. God didn't say, go down there and I'll part the water. They had to literally take that step of faith first into that rushing, overflowing water. The elders that were left, the remnant of the priesthood that was about to be established, the leaders that understood what that ark represented and did not allow that wilderness journey to destroy the integrity of their God or their God in their mind of them. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I want to do for my God. Because I understand that nothing is forever and I understand one thing, this physical body is only going to last so long. But I belong to something that is eternal and I belong to a God who sees through the eyes of eternal. And I belong to a God that can change the heart, the mind, and the soul of any individual that takes a breath. I don't care what condition they're in. And I want to challenge you as a church and as the body, I believe God's doing this everywhere just from what's been said here tonight can we take things back the way they were we don't have to change anything we just have to institute what God said to do in the first place stand thank you Jesus the definition of joy makes this statement Joy is a delight of the mind from the consideration of the present or assured approaching possession of a good. When I read those words, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it, I understood something. You never receive anything until you go after it. When Jesus Christ came to the earth and He walked in the flesh, he came here with a sword. Even though we saw the flesh stand upon him. When you look at the scripture, you can see that Joshua saw a man standing there with a sword. I don't know whether you know that or not, but it was God standing there with that sword. Because the statement to him was the same statement that God made unto Moses. You take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. What God allowed Joshua to see was his willingness to fight for what he loved. And the reality that he had already gone before them and fought that spiritual battle. But he still required them to step into that water, go across that river, and fight the battles that took back what he said they could have. And I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of watching young people's lives being destroyed. I'm sick and tired of watching condemnation destroy their minds at the same time there's a world of lying and deception out there convincing them that the choices they're making are right when they know down and deep they're not I'm sick and tired of watching the enemy convince me like poor old David was in his last days that just just not so and I'm thankful that I have His Word to know better. I'm thankful to know that I'm not doing this on my own. That God doesn't have expectations of me that are unrealistic. His only expectation of me is obedience and a willingness to see people through His eyes and to recognize their value in everything that He did, that He has accomplished, that He has yet to accomplish is because of His love for humanity. Thank you, Jesus. This altar is open. If you want to come and just rededicate, I think the thing that I repent of the most anymore is questioning the validity of God's promises. There's nothing wrong with asking God questions. 
But I find more and more when I ask him questions and he gives me answers that he immediately takes me to a place of repentance because it shows me something. It's like I ask the Lord. We, we're always, you know, I, I go to God and say, God, you said these signs shall follow them that believe and this and that's going to happen and this and that's going to happen. And the enemy comes and he continues to yak that in our ear. So I asked God about that. You know what God's response to me was? He said, you want, you want what the apostles had? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, are you giving me what they gave me? Mm. You want what they had? Or are you giving me what they gave me? He didn't say it condemningly because he doesn't work that way. He's just giving me a sense of reality. Say, look, do you really trust me like they trusted me? Do you trust me to provide for you? Do you trust me when I want you to go someplace that you don't know how it's going to work or why it's going to work? Do you trust me enough to simply walk up to that stranger when I speak to you and say what I'm telling you to say? I don't have a problem giving you what they have because I desire that greater than even you do. And it's not predicated on us manipulating God. Don't misunderstand my statement. And his challenge to me, again, wasn't demeaning. It's just, I realize, you know what? If I want what God tells me I can have, i got to pursue it. And when you're pursuing something, you're constantly challenged with those choices about what it's going to take to get there, what i got to let go of to get there what I have time for and what I don't have time for. Kind of rebuked our church. We started 30 days of prayer August 1st. And I told him, I said, you know, we can spend hours on Facebook. We can sit and watch a football game. We can, we can listen to this or that. Are you going to make time, get in the presence of God, and leave everything off, seek His face, and let Him talk to you? Do we do that? The world we live in, it's hard, but it, it's a pursuit that God honors. It's, it's a simple choice that He honors. Thank you, Jesus. Brother Shostrain. Closing. Let's come. Hallelujah. Let's just ask the Lord to restore our faith. Hallelujah. God can do anything. God is able to do anything exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think according to the power. Lord, help us to be a channel of your power. Help us, Lord, to be a channel of your glory, your spirit. Hallelujah. Let's thank you.